Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 102. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on January 13th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Okay, so I inadvertently set off a bit of a Twitter thing a couple of days ago. I wrote a short thread on the legacy of Sir Francis Drake over a story from the BBC about a British primary school, the Sir Francis Drake Primary School, changing its name to the Twin Oaks Primary School because Drake was, quote, a 16th century slave trader. My thread pointed out that regarding slavery, Drake's story was actually one of personal change of heart and that teaching that story might be useful and inspirational. Mostly, I was offended by the BBC's shallow and ahistorical take on the whole thing. Well, apparently I stepped right into British culture war discourse, which in retrospect should not have surprised me. My thread was retweeted at least 295 times with more than 125,000 impressions, at least as of yesterday, whatever any of that means. Generally, people were very respectful, actually, and I picked up something like 150 mostly British followers. Maybe a few of them are now listening to this podcast, so if so, welcome aboard. Regarding the question of renaming schools and such and the removal of statues, I'm for doing it thoughtfully, specifically, and for using each such decision to educate. And I oppose it when it's dogmatic, unthinking, or purely political. Regarding Drake, there have been many such renamings of schools and other things in California in the last two or three years. As I've said before, the historical reason to do that is that it's highly unlikely that Drake landed in California, California founding mythology notwithstanding. His fair and good bay was almost certainly in Oregon or Washington. Of course, the reason given in both the California cases and the British school is that Drake was supposedly a slave trader. That's a gross overstatement of his role as a 28-year-old junior officer on his cousin's ship in 1568, especially in light of his subsequent conduct, which long-standing and attentive listeners know reflected a profound change of heart on the subject. Later in life, Drake freed more than a thousand slaves, paid them as he paid the English when they worked on his ship, never resold them for a profit and refused to return former enslaved people to the Spanish unless the individual involved asked to be returned. My point in the thread will surprise none of our regular listeners, rename the school or not, but use the moment to teach the more nuanced story, which itself contains the very important lesson that even a 16th century pirate could become a better person and in some respect atone for his sin as a young man. Anyway, I'll put a link to the Twitter thread in the show notes so you can go check it out if you're interested. Okay, enough of that. Now for the history stuff. It seems the last episode and this one are unexpectedly topical. This being January 2023, the United States House of Representatives has just struggled to elect a speaker for the first time in living human memory. 
when you dig beneath the partisan animosity and mostly shallow media coverage, at least part of the fight over the candidacy of Kevin McCarthy had to do with the circumstances under which rank-and-file members are allowed to debate, propose legislation, and offer amendments on the floor of the House. As it happens, the last episode in this talk about the English Parliament of the 1620s, which was united against the crown instead of divided along factional lines as our house is today. In spite of that important difference, one can still see echoes of those fights 400 years ago in the opposition of at least the more thoughtful dissident Republicans who demanded and apparently secured the restoration of age-old rights to amend and debate legislation that were extinguished for arguably the first time in our history under speakers Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi. For example, as recently as 2011, the speaker allowed votes on the floor on more than 400 amendments to propose legislation. That number declined rapidly to zero in 2017, and since then there's not been a single floor vote on proposed amendments to legislation. That is why we now get these massive bills that nobody's entirely read, negotiated behind closed doors among a small number of congressional leaders. In the 1620s, the conflict with the Crown also turned on the extent to which members of Parliament would be permitted to debate and enact legislation on a huge range of subjects. There was a big difference. Then, Parliament was united in the defense of its institutional prerogatives. Today's United States Congress is closely divided on partisan lines, which confers huge leverage on a small group of dissenters. And yet, in some ways, the fight is the same and asks the same question. Under what circumstances should elected representatives be free to debate and vote for legislation that constrains or enables the power of the executive? To be clear, I'm arguing for neither Kevin McCarthy or the GOP dissidents that held up his election. I'm merely pointing out that fighting over legislative process is one of the oldest traditions in Anglo-American democracy. If the outcome, in fact, results in more genuine debate on the floor of the House, it will be something of a reversion to practices that go back to the earliest days of English settlement in North America. Last time, we looked at the tumultuous year of 1621 and ended with Sir Edward Coke's stirring defense of the rights of members of Parliament to free speech within their chamber, and King James I tossing him into the tower on account of it. The constraint and royal power was closely bound up with the rights of Puritans, Calvinist Protestants in England's incomplete Reformation, to practice their version of Christian faith inside the Church of England. Coke was no Puritan, but both Puritans and James saw that Coke's campaign to confine royal authority, then bending the state church back toward Roman liturgy and practice, aligned quite closely with Puritan religious interests. James would make good on his vow never to call another parliament in his lifetime, which would extend only a bit more than three years. James would die at age 59 on March 27, 1625, and his son Charles I would become king. Charles had served in Parliament and had his own relationship with its leaders. He respected Coke, and in the early days of his reign, there was some hope that the tension that had prevailed under his father would dissipate. 
Fortunately for the history of the Americans, it wouldn't. Charles would extend and amplify his father's claim of absolute royal power and accelerate the imposition of fundamentally Catholic practices in the Church of England. Charles had not, in the end, married the daughter of Philip of Spain, a decision that was wildly popular in England. He then turned around and did the next worst thing, though, which was to marry Henrietta Maria, the obviously Catholic daughter of Louis XIII of France. Charles promised that his marriage would not influence his policy toward religious practice in England. Sadly, that was a lie. He had, in fact, pledged to Louis that he would relax enforcement of the law against Catholic recusants in England. The ugly truth was, Charles was a weasel. He would lie or go back on his word so frequently and over such important matters that the relations between Parliament, which had a lot of Puritan members, and the Crown would be shot through with suspicion, even if superficial and required statements of trust and forbearance fill the official documents. The key points of distrust were war, religion, the Duke of Buckingham, that's a topic to which we'll return in a moment, and money. The situation would get so dire that Charles would dissolve Parliament in 1629 and not call another one until 1640, inaugurating more than a decade of, quote, personal rule. During that decade, he would not only go easy on the Catholics, bad enough for Protestant English of the day, but through his appointment of Archbishop William Loud, remember that name, would crack down on nonconformists within the Church of England, including especially Puritans. Tens of thousands of them would leave England, mostly for New England and the English colonies in the Caribbean. The battle between Charles and the parliaments of the second half of the 1620s is important because it sets up the first English Civil War, which would considerably influence the political development of the Americans. My muse therefore dictates that I go through it for you, even at the expense of getting back to New England as quickly as we would all like. The Duke of Buckingham began life in 1592 as a fellow named George Villiers. Here's how Wikipedia introduces him, quote, George Villiers, first Duke of Buckingham, was an English courtier, statesman, and patron of the arts. He was a favorite and possibly also a lover of King James I of England. Buckingham remained at the height of royal favor for the first three years of the reign of James's son, King Charles I, until a disgruntled army officer assassinated him. Well then, there might be something going on there. Let's look a bit more closely. Back again to Wikipedia, quote, In August 1614, at age 21, Villiers caught the eye of King James I at a hunt in Apathorpe. Opponents of the king's favorite, Robert Carr, Earl of Somerset, saw an opportunity to displace Somerset and began promoting Villiers. Money was raised to purchase Villiers a new wardrobe, and intense lobbying secured his appointment as royal cup-bearer, a position that allowed him to make conversation with the king. Villiers began to appear as a dancer in masks from 1615, in which he could exhibit his grace of movement and beauty of body, a recognized avenue to royal favor since the time of Elizabeth I. Okay, interjection. Of course, 
the unmarried Elizabeth finding favor and male grace of movement and beauty of body was arguably different than the married James doing so. But monarchs then, as opposed to now, could do what they wanted without anybody calling them on it. Back to Wikipedia. Under the king's patronage, Villiers advanced rapidly through the ranks of the nobility, and his court appointments grew in importance. In 1615, he was knighted as a gentleman of the bedchamber. In 1616, when he became the king's master of the horse, he was elevated to peerage as Baron Wadden, Viscount Villiers, and made a knight of the garter. Okay, another interjection. Look, you guys, gentlemen of the bedchamber, master of the horse, and knight of the garter were totally normal titles. Get your presentist minds out of the gutter. Back to Wikipedia. The next year, he was made earl, and in 1618, promoted Marquess of Buckingham, and finally in 1623, Duke of Buckingham. Villiers' new rank allowed him to dance side by side with the royal heir, Charles I., with whom his friendship developed through his tutoring of the prince in dance. Back to me. Whether or not James and Buckingham were lovers has, of course, obsessed historians and mere history buffs for most of the last four centuries, but it actually doesn't matter to the history of the Americans. What did matter was that both James and Charles came to rely on Buckingham, who would be only 33 when James died, for counsel and advice almost to the exclusion of other advisors. There were two problems with this. First, there was a long tradition of English monarchs seeking advice from a relatively large group of advisors, the famous Privy Council and others. See, for example, Elizabeth's astonishingly capable group of advisors whom this podcast has discussed many times. Royal advisors were seen as an important constraint on royal tyranny and, it must be said, incompetence. That one young man with no obvious experience other than grace of movement and beauty of body should dominate such an important function was a legitimate cause for concern. Second, Buckingham seems to have given almost perfectly bad advice, leading both James and Charles into one unpopular decision after another. So war, religion, the Duke of Buckingham, and money all were topics that sowed distrust between Charles I and royalist high church Anglicans on the one hand, and parliament, Puritans, and anti-royalist law and tradition types on the other. Let's go through them one by one, which is especially easy to do, because in 1990, Michael B. Young, now professor at Illinois Wesleyan, published an article called Charles I and the Erosion of Trust, 1625 to 1628. Distrust over the question of war in the late 1620s will sound eerily familiar to Americans paying attention to their own foreign policy over the last 20 or so years. In 1624, Parliament had voted money to fund the defense of the kingdom in case war should break out with Spain, which there had been some new risk of happening. But it didn't. In Professor Young's words, peace broke out. Nevertheless, in 1625, Charles demanded more defense funding, known then as supply, against, quote, an unknown enemy in a war that had not yet been declared. Parliament demanded to know more, with member Simon Weston, among others, saying, let us first desire to know our enemy. 
before we agree to contribute to a war. As it turned out, Charles was not planning a war against Spain, which was always fairly popular in England, but instead wanted to go to war in Germany against the Holy Roman Empire to recover a district known as the Palatinate, which had been ruled by royal cousins until Catholic armies had conquered it. Unlike, for example, the United States Congress in the last 21 years, Parliament of 1625 was not willing to fund an open-ended authorization for the use of force. We report, you decide. Religion also created mistrust, and the causes were both mystical and concrete. Regarding the former, it was Charles' bad luck that his accession to the throne was accompanied by a series of disasters, including a deadly outbreak of plague in England and a series of military catastrophes. For Puritans who read scripture literally, these closely track the catastrophes that had befallen the people of biblical Israel when they weakened in their adherence to God's law. These were signs that England was falling from God's favor. Among the more, shall we say, provable grounds for Parliament to distrust Charles was the discovery that he had lied about his negotiations to marry Henrietta Maria of France. Now back to Professor Young, quote, Having narrowly escaped a Spanish Catholic bride in 1624... MPs who had expected Charles to marry a Protestant now faced a French Catholic queen as a fait accompli. MPs were deeply and rightly suspicious that Charles had agreed to be lenient toward his English Catholic subjects to obtain a French alliance. Sir Robert Phillips was quite explicit on this point. Charles, he said, had been expected to link himself in such an alliance as might agree with us in religion. Saddled now with a French marriage, Phillips wondered what the Spanish articles were we know. Whether those with France be any better is doubted. There are visible articles and invisible. MPs knew what was afoot. To conclude his marriage with Henrietta Maria, Charles had signed a secret agreement including these words, quote, I will promise to all the Roman Catholic subjects of the crown of Great Britain the utmost of liberty and franchise in everything regarding their religion, which they would have had in virtue of any articles which were agreed upon by the Treaty of Marriage with Spain, close quote. In compliance with the secret promise, Charles had stopped the prosecution of recusants and relieved English Catholics from other liabilities. Back to me. It was worse than that. There were, gasp, French people all over the place at court, and rumors spread that Catholic services were performed in the palace. In the summer of 1625, Parliament issued a petition that expressed alarm at the increase of popery in England. That's popery, not popery. And alluded somewhat darkly to Charles quote, many gracious promises and assurances on the subject, much to the contrary of his actual practice. Charles bobbed and weaved a bit in his response, deferring his reply for months. He finally dispatched an unqualified commitment to comply with Parliament's requests. This, too, would turn out to be, as Mary Poppins would have said, a pie-crust promise, easily made, easily broken. The third reason for distrusting Charles was, as we've just said, his reliance on the young, handsome, graceful, and erroneous 
Duke of Buckingham. There were a long series of foreign policy debacles at least popularly attributed to Buckingham's advice. You'll have to trust me on that. Going into the details would be too far afield even for me. Buckingham's monopoly on the giving of royal advice was coupled with a vast system of patronage. Buckingham controlled the flow of royal favors, offices, and honors, and took full advantage of that control. Sorting out the degree to which the parliamentary criticisms of Buckingham were driven by concern for good government versus jealousy is, of course, a topic about which there is plenty to debate. It also doesn't matter insofar as it led Parliament to distrust the king. Finally, Parliament did not trust the king to spend the money it appropriated on the thing it appropriated it for. Parliament's only real power was over taxation, but it had numerous other grievances that were arguably outside its historical purview. These grievances, as we have seen, had to do with resisting the very expansive divine right justification for monarchy advanced first by James I and then by Charles I, and concern over the drift toward Roman church practices. Parliament, therefore, sought to leverage its power of the purse into securing reforms in these other areas. Charles vacillated between outraged at what he viewed as parliamentary overreach and placating. Sure, appropriate the money, and then I'll take up all your grievances. Yeah, that's the ticket. Parliament had learned not to trust Charles, and so said it would do precisely the reverse, authorize the supply only when the grievances of the commons had been addressed. That is also a legislative ploy most of us have seen in our own lives, and probably will again. The result of all of this was a continuing confrontation with minor concessions. For example, for more than 200 years, Parliament had given every king a lifetime grant to impose customs duties on tonnage and poundage to fund the ordinary expenses of government. The Parliament of 1625 granted Charles that right for only one year. This pushed Charles into new practices that poured gasoline on the fire of public opinion. Now to John Barry, quote, First, Charles tried to raise money as his father had through a benevolence, voluntary gifts to the crown. It yielded little. The Privy Council then called for a forced loan. Hundreds refused to pay. He imprisoned 70 of the most prominent refusers. And worse, he imprisoned them with no charge out of fear that the courts would declare the forced loan illegal. When common law courts issued writs of habeas corpus, his jailers refused to honor them. This imprisonment of knights, local leaders, and members of parliament rocked the gentry, a class normally supportive of established authority. This was not the only crown infringement on English rights. Without enough funds for its army and navy, the king's officers imposed martial law in some locales and billeted soldiers and sailors in private homes with only the promise of future payment for the board. Back to me. Astute listeners will see reasons for the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation. End of the Third Amendment. No soldier shall, in time of peace 
be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner. Of course, a lot would happen in the almost 200 years between Charles I and our own Bill of Rights, so I don't mean to suggest that these infringements were the sole basis for our own constitutional protections, but they certainly were a great start in that direction. By 1628, Charles was running seriously low on money. He released the imprisoned refusers and called a new parliament. It would not go well and would be the last he would call until 1640. Now back to John Barry, quote, The new parliament had an extraordinary cast, men rich in intellect and principle and prepared for confrontation. Every refuser, including 27 who had been imprisoned, who ran for parliament won election, while crown supporters fared poorly. Sir Edward Coke, aged 76, also served. It would be his last parliament and his most memorable one. The king claimed to seek a reconciliation, and he was hardly conciliatory. He planned to bring 1,000 German mercenaries to England, putting critics who feared this force would become a Praetorian guard on alert and on guard. The plan never came to fruition. Then in his opening address to Parliament, he warned that if it failed to give him what the state at this time needs, I must, in discharge of my conscience, Use those other means, which God hath put into my hands. Take not this as a threatening, for I scorn to threaten any but my equals. Back to me, Charles was not, it turned out, a great salesman. Commons formed a committee, including Coke, to consider both grievances and supplying funds for the king. The committee resolved that the king could not imprison any freeman without cause or on his own order, that writs of habeas corpus shall be executed, and that no taxes, loans, or benevolences could be demanded without Parliament's approval. The committee also voted to supply the expenses of government and wage war on the continent, but conditioned the approval on Charles accepting the limitations on his power. The drama moved to the House of Lords, whose support was needed to put Charles on the spot. Commons, via Coke, drafted the now famous Petition of Right, which spelled out the prohibitions against forced loans, other shady financings, billeting of troops and homes, obstructing writs of habeas corpus, and it reaffirmed the many rights in the Magna Carta. Coke presented it to the Lords, made the usual amazing speech, and after some lukewarm attempts to amend the petition, the Lords passed it unanimously without amendment. Charles blew off the petition of right and ordered Commons to pass the supply and entertain no new matters. He also ordered Parliament to refrain from saying anything, quote, which may lay scandal or aspersion on the state government or ministers thereof. This was a mistake. Nobody in Parliament would have denounced the king or taken his name in vain or shown disrespect in any formal sense. Yet in addition to spurning the petition of right, the king was now proposing to suppress Parliament's most important privilege, freedom of speech within Parliament. Now let's go to John Barry's stirring account of the moment. Quote, to violate the king's explicit instruction seemed impossible. Silence fell upon the house, upon the whole great chamber. 
The silence reverberated with meaning. John Pym, one of Parliament's most influential members, rose, began to speak, then broke into weeping and sat down. Coke rose, began to speak, then broke into weeping. Even he sat down, silenced by the gravity of the king's command. Another member proposed they do no business whatsoever, but protest by sitting in silence. Finally, Nathaniel Rich rose. They could not remain silent, he said. They had a duty to speak. He insisted they speak. We must speak now or forever hold our peace. Pym, still weeping, now seconded him. The weight of the moment was upon the house, the weight of knowing that the king would dismiss Parliament and might not call another. Phillips, too, felt the need to speak even while declaring, I fear it is the last time I shall ever speak in this house. Then Coke took to the floor. Our liberties are now impeached. Let us take this to heart. He called for a reading of the protestation of 1621, that protest which James had physically torn from the Commons Journal. He recounted from history instances when members of Parliament had spoken in defiance of an order from the Crown. Though they went to the Tower for it, as all knew he had gone to the Tower, could they do less? Now when there is such a downfall of the state, shall we hold our tongues? How shall we answer our duties to God and men? When may we not name those that are the cause of all our evils? Nothing grows to abuse, but that this house hath power to treat of it. What shall we now do? Let us palliate no longer. The Duke of Buckingham is the cause of all our miseries, and till the king be informed thereof, we shall never go out with honor, nor sit with honor here. That man is the grievance of grievances. Coke had pronounced Buckingham's name. It was the first explicit violation of the king's order, and suddenly nothing was held back. In great shouts of support, members shouted Buckingham's name, blamed him for all that was wrong, blamed him for war and for failures in war. Vitriol poured out of their mouths, pure vitriol. Back to me, Parliament was out of control. The king, through the speaker, ordered that debate be suspended for the day. But the next day it resumed. Moderate members of both commons and lords put together a deal. Charles must accept the petition of right, and Parliament would end the rage and pass the supply. Members begged Charles to agree, and even the Duke of Buckingham urged it. Charles went to the House of Lords, listened while the petition was read, and then passed a note to the clerk reading only, quote, Let right be done, it is desired. In French, Charles had for the moment acceded to the rule of law in a moment about which Winston Churchill would write, quote, We reach here the main foundation of English freedom, the charter of every self-respecting man at any time in any land. That might be slightly overstating it, but the point holds. Having done this, Charles suspended Parliament for six months rather than dissolving it, knowing that he would need money again. He then spent the interregnum, the second half of 1628, doing everything and anything to antagonize Parliament all over again. 
He subverted the publication of the Petition of Right, allowing its printing only without his agreement to it. He claimed the right to collect customs duties without parliamentary approval. And in July 1628, he appointed William Loud the Bishop of London. Loud was fanatically anti-Puritan and would effectively run the Church of England thereafter, ignoring his boss, the Archbishop of Canterbury, until Charles appointed Loud to that post in 1633. Loud would immediately step up the persecution of Puritans and accelerate the move of the Church of England toward Catholic practices. Then on August 23, 1628, a disgruntled Army veteran named John Felton fatally stabbed the Duke of Buckingham in the Greyhound pub at Portsmouth. Buckingham had been so unpopular that Felton was widely acclaimed as a hero because, you know, it was 1628 and killing the favorite advisor to a tyrant could be popular. Poems were written about Felton, and the crown was so worried that Buckingham's corpse would be desecrated by an angry mob that the coffin in the public funeral procession was empty and the body went secretly by other means. Charles wanted Felton tortured before he was executed, but even his own judges would not allow it. According to Barry, crowds gathered to pray for Felton when he was hung. Parliament reconvened in January 1629 without Sir Edward Coke, who was now old and in decline, and it was loaded for bear. Charles had effectively reneged in his acceptance of the petition of right, and he had resumed collecting duties without Parliament's approval. All bad enough. But it was Bishop Loud's moves against Puritans, combined with the retreat of Protestantism abroad, that enraged Parliament and filled Puritans with anxiety. One MP after another stood up to inveigh against Catholicism and Loud's English version of the Counter-Reformation. Oliver Cromwell, who would one day loom very large, gave his first speech in Parliament that session. Now back to Barry, quote, on February 25, 1629, a Commons committee warned of a dangerous design aiming at the subversion of all the Protestant churches of Christendom, for which evidence abounded at home and abroad. Protestants in Germany and France were in great part already ruined. Ireland was almost wholly overspread with popery. And under Charles and his father, even in England, their own England— we observe extraordinary growth of popery. In a direct charge to the king, it concluded, if our religion be suppressed and destroyed abroad, disturbed in Scotland, lost in Ireland, undermined and almost outdated in England, it's manifest that our danger is very great and imminent. Back to me. The conflict that had once been about the power and prerogatives of two different branches of government, Crown and Parliament, had become inextricably intertwined with religion to the extent that confessional differences now dominated the political rhetoric, which became ever more impassioned. Charles still wanted Parliament to approve his funding request and give him the right to collect duties for his reign rather than one year at a time. But the Rage in Parliament made that seem ever less likely. Now let's go back to John Barry's account one last time for the final pulse-pounding moments of the last Parliament that would sit 
for the next 11 years, quote, a fear that Parliament would be dissolved hung over the city. As that threat seemed increasingly certain, John Eliot was determined to go out not like sheep scattered, but to testify to the world that we have a care of their safety in religion. He and his allies had a plan. They wrote a resolution, a resolution of fear and fury, and they intended to demand a vote on it. The next morning, as the doors of Commons opened, the physically strongest and most ferocious of his supporters took seats in the front of the chamber by the Speaker's chair, where the King's allies normally sat. Other supporters took places in the rear by the doors. When Speaker John Finch gaveled the session to order, Eliot began to read his resolution. The Speaker refused to put the question to a vote. Instead, he began to rise, and his rising would end the session. Suddenly, young, brawny men rushed the chair and pushed him back down, back into his seat, forced him down. Others sealed the doors and back. When the speaker protested that he was acting upon the king's orders, expecting those holding him to desist, Denzel Hollis shouted, Zounds, you shall sit as long as the house pleases. Okay, I'm just going to interject here and come out and say that C-SPAN coverage of congressional debate would get higher ratings if occasionally somebody blurted out zounds and physically prevented the speaker from standing up. Back to Barry. There was chaos now, chaos in the house, no man almost knowing what to do. The distraction was so sudden and so great. Word went to the king to call out the guard. Fights erupted as some members tried to free the speaker. At the back of the hall, a messenger from the king pounded on the locked great door, a noise that reverberated through the house. Elliot threw his resolution into the fire to destroy the evidence. The floor erupted in bedlam and commotion, all yells and pushing and fists. Dugley Diggis was Coke's old ally, no friend of the king, yet he moved to adjourn. He was ignored. The pounding on the door intensified. Finally, Elliot and his allies gained a semblance of control of the floor. Hollis, at the top of his lungs, shouted words as violent as the day, attacks on evil counsels to the king, on papist traitors. Then Hollis bellowed out three resolutions. Any merchant or person whatsoever who shall voluntarily yield or pay the said subsidies, in other words, anyone who cooperated with the king, was a betrayer of the liberties of England and an enemy of the state. I shouted the commons. The king's messenger and the king's soldiers hammered on the door, the sound echoing through the chamber. Whosoever shall bring an innovation of religion, or by favor or countenance seek to extend or introduce popery, or other opinion disagreeing with the true and orthodox church, shall be reputed a capital enemy to the kingdom and commonwealth. A capital enemy, a traitor subject to death. Hollis put the question, I shouted the commons. Hollis shouted out the next resolution, that any who counsel or advise the taking or levying of the subsidies of tonnage and poundage not being granted by parliament was a capital enemy a traitor subject to death. I shouted the commons. 
Now, finally, commons adjourned, and members poured out of the House chamber in a flood of flight. Almost as promptly, several parliamentary leaders were arrested. John Eliot would die in the tower three years later. His son asked permission to bury his body at home. An unforgiving Charles replied, Let Sir John Eliot be buried in the church of that parish in which he died. Back to me. Charles would not call another parliament until 1640, and so this would inaugurate the infamous 11 years of personal rule. In 1642, the first English Civil War would erupt, but that is another story that also had profound implications for the history of the Americans, and it will be at least a few months until we get to it, at least at the pace I normally go. For our purposes, two things might be taken from the tumultuous parliament of 1628 and 29. First, it would ignite the Puritan Great Migration, which would persist until the Puritans in England gain the upper hand after 1640. The many thousands of Puritans who left for Massachusetts in 1628 and after were seared by the trauma of the conflict between Parliament and Charles in the late 1620s. Because immigration to New England would all but stop after 1640, it was this cohort and their descendants who would build the political and cultural tradition in New England that would, 140 years down the road, assert many of the same liberties against a very different parliament and form the backbone of the independence movement in the future United States. Second, Roger Williams, he who had served Coke all those years, had gone on to work for Puritans in Parliament in 1628 and 29, acting as a messenger among them and to influential supporters around the country. He had witnessed Coke's intransigence in the cause of liberty and the courage of Parliament's fiery leaders in those years. Williams would move to New England in the early 1630s and there be as intransigent in defense of his conception of liberty as any European man in early America. We will spend some time with Williams in the near future. This is a good place to wrap up this episode. I've relied heavily, although far from exclusively, on John Barry's book, Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, which I highly recommend if you want to dig deeper. If you do buy it, please consider clicking through the Amazon link in the show notes on our website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email, also helpfully, thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.